Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Street Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. And I said to the guy, Sherlock, don't you mean Sherlock? Welcome to another episode of Baker Street Regulars. We're your Baker Street Regulars. I'm one of them. And I'm the other. (laughs) Comedy. Comedy. Who got it? (laughs) Who wants it? That's what the people are hungry for. That's what I hear. We get hundreds of letters every day. They say, when are you going to do a comedy episode? Right, right. They're like, you're doing so many serious episodes. When are you going to get a comedy? Well, guess what? This one's for you. So I want to tell you a story about a detective. Okay. And and not the true detective, but a character close to him, who is our main character, who's kind of a creep and an asshole. At some point in this story, a woman becomes involved... And later in the story, we find out that she's lying about being the daughter of a significant man in the case. Moriarty's behind it all and makes an attempt on somebody's life. This all leads up to a climactic sword fight at a theater where the hero proves he isn't just living in the detective's shadow. And then there's a happy ending with a happy pair of characters. Oh my god. So that's both movies. This is the, They're the same movie. <laughs> they're the same movie. That's astonishing. Some of the set dressing's different. Somehow, that whole plot made two separate movies. But are they different movies? Yes. So that's why I think we could do them in the same episode. I had seen both of these movies years and years before, and I'd forgotten most of what happens in both of them before we rewatched them. You'd never seen either. No. Should we just dive right into our let's first di- one? Let's dive right in. So the first film we're looking at is The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, a 1975 American film Mm -hmm. starring Gene Wilder, who also wrote and directed the movie. It's his directorial debut after receiving a co-writer credit on Young Frankenstein. He wanted to produce this idea. He wanted Mel Brooks to be involved, and Mel Brooks told him to just do it on his own. Mm -hmm. But it's very much... Like the cast of Young Frankenstein doing a movie together. So Madeline Kahn is the the client. Mm-hmm. Marty Feldman is effectively the Watson. And this movie came out only a year after Young Frankenstein. Interesting. Where where was this in relation to Willy Wonka? Because there's only two Gene Wilder, no, three Gene Wilder films mm-hmm. in my book. Blazing Saddles. Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein. And Willy Wonka? Yeah. He had a number of collaborations with Richard Pryor. I saw one of those when I was younger. There's also the producers, but... Oh, and the producers. And, wait a second, and his Alice in Wonderland. Oh, when he was the Mock Turtle. When he was the Mock Turtle. I feel like you're selling turtle short... Turtle soup. You're selling short a very gifted actor. His Wonka movie came out in 1971. Gotcha, so years after Wonka. That's so That's so interesting that Young Frankenstein came after Wonka. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I have them reversed in my mind. His character in Wonka feels older than his character in Young Frankenstein. Definitely. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. So, I would like to summarize this movie, but in all fairness, I don't know how. I just did summarize this movie. Because there's a lot more that happens in this movie than that, but a lot of them are just random scenes. This is interesting because... 
I think this is also how I feel about Young Frankenstein, is that if you go back to Young Frankenstein and remember it as a movie with a plot, it's not. I mm. mean, Young Frankenstein also feels like a series of vignettes, even though there is an overarching plot tying them all together. The stakes don't translate scene to scene. Mm. So it is like comic setup, comic resolution, next scene starts, you know? Interesting. And this this movie sort of has that going on too, where like there's a basic premise and then things happen until the movie ends. <laughs> so clearly it works in Young Frankenstein. History of the World Part 1, it works. Sure. And I think part of that is the like madcap sensibility of Mel Brooks. The comic sensibility does not 100% work in this movie. We'll talk about this more when we get into the, this part of the film, but there are some scenes in this movie where it's just like a lot of different comic ideas have been thrown at the wall that don't totally mesh together. Mm-hmm. But let me out- outline the beginnings of the plot, <laughs> which is that we meet Sherlock and Watson. Mm-hmm. Who are Douglas Wilmore and Thorley Walters, who were Sherlock and Watson in the 1960s BBC TV series, as well as three other films that they appeared in as Sherlock and Watson. Every generation gets its own BBC series <laughs> of Sherlock and Watson. That's so funny. And I love that they get used here because the setup of the film is that there's a case that Sherlock has that he wants his younger brother to take care of. Minecraft also exists, but he's not really part of the story. And Watson's like, why are you going to pass this case off to him? And he's like, well... The client needs to fall in love before she'll reveal anything. I think he should deal with that. And I'm sending this peculiar man who has a photographic sense of hearing to deliver the message and to assist him. He's an officer himself, correct? Yes. That man, who is Marty Feldman, introduces himself as Orville Sacker of Scotland Yard. So Orville Sacker shows up at the apartment of Sherlock Holmes. He tells the beautiful joke which we started the episode with. Orville's like, you have a brother named Sherlock Holmes? Is like, no, his name is Sheer Luck. Because, <laughs> so the premise is that he, like, thinks his brother isn't so smart at solving crimes, I guess. He's just lucky. He's just lucky. He's a star. And he cry, cry, cries. Yeah. So Orville sort of charms his way in, and Sherlock is like, all right, since you think I'm so clever, because you've studied the case of the, of the three testicles... <laughs> Yes. You can come in, but please hop up on that seat there and pedal this bicycle, which powers my sword fighting machine so that I can practice my fencing. That was cool. It's a cool idea, but this scene should be introducing us to our characters. And, like, just the characterization goes in every direction at once. Like, he's he's so inconsiderate and, (laughs) like, he's a fencer, which, which doesn't become important until later and... Um, like he builds machines like none of this ever right. the sword fighting shows up later but nothing else ever really goes anywhere and it's kind of an asshole move to like have someone come into your house and then be like alright power my sword fighting machine so that I can pretend you're not here and fake sword fight also he could have just sword fight, fought with Orville I suppose also not British oh Gene Wilder Gene Wilder never attempts a British accent yeah. in this film this film is not going to be high marks in Britishness I don't think <laughs> Some of the supporting cast is pretty British, but... Yeah. And also, from the get-go, Gene Wilder's character is an asshole and kind of remains an asshole throughout the entire film. Throughout, because at this point, Madeline Kahn arrives. Who we love. Who we love, Madeline Kahn. We are a big Madeline Kahn-loving podcast. Yes. I feel like the script backs her into a corner because 
she just doesn't have much to play. She's very funny, but there's not a lot of direction for her to go with the character. But here's the thing. She d- still finds really funny moments. That's what I love about Madeline Kahn. Yes. She can have the worst script ever mm-hmm. yeah. and still be so funny. Yeah. But she opens the door and she's like, I'm Bessie so-and-so. And Sherlock yells, liar! <laughs> because he's a charmer, you know? Um, right. And they proceed to have a, like, vaudeville song off. He starts singing, like, vaudeville songs to see if she knows the rest of the song mm-hmm. to prove that she is or is not a vaudeville performer, which, as it turns out, she is not. Is she not? Because I can't, I can't tell. Oh, he, wait, he says, right, this is the thing, is he's like, you're not a vaudeville performer. But then in, like, a scene or two, she's performing in a vaudeville. Right. And then later, she's a teacher. She's she's just not the vaudeville performer that but she, says she, she, is. she claims to be, yeah. She's a different vaudeville performer. Yeah, who's also an opera singer. Is she an opera singer? Yeah, the last... Oh, she does perform in an opera at the end. Yeah. She does everything. And she's a t- she's every woman. She's Shaka Khan. <laughs> but it's a glorious way to hear Madeline Khan sing. So, eventually, Sherlock says, who and what are you? And she says, and I wrote it down, she says, my name is Jenny Hill, and I'm simultaneously funny and sad. Me too. <laughs> Retweet. And then she's like, I'm being blackmailed, and this this guy, Gambetti, has this dirt on me, and I want this letter. And then she's like, but actually, I'm just acting, and I'm pretending, and ha, you fell for it, and I really must go. And then Sherlock... But she actually is being blackmailed. But she actually is being blackmailed. And the way that Sherlock gets her back in is by... Singing the kangaroo hop. Yeah. Which turns into a full musical number. musical number with accompaniment. And the three of them, who are not on friendly terms and have just met, are like hopping around the apartment. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing is that like you could do a movie where the characters suddenly break into this musical number and that could be funny and fun. Yeah. But we we've barely met these characters it feels really out of place. I don't understand it as an emotional beat. Like, it's not the right song. And it's not the right song. It's a real vaudeville song. It's a real vaudeville song, of course. But like in this moment in the story, like you would not sing this right? comedic bunny song or kangaroo song. Yeah. And then, so we cut away from our heroes to meet our villains. We meet our Moriarty. And, My favorite part of this film and is his Moriarty. Oh, really? I love this Moriarty. Oh, I don't, I don't know that I like this Moriarty. Tell me more. So, we have seen a Moriarty be, you know, evil. Super evil. I'm Moriarty and I'm going to destroy the world and get my way and I'm clever and smart and everything. And this one, he was just an oaf and I loved it. Yeah, he really is. Moriarty, the way he often gets depicted, you expect him to like win every interaction with everybody who's not mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes and like always be on top and always be the smartest. That's not this guy. No. This guy, he kind of looks like the Quaker Oats man. <laughs> so just picture that. He also has some sort of like tick. Where he yells randomly? It's unclear. It seems like it's worse when he's stressed later in the movie. But in this scene, it seems like it's just whenever. Uh, this this scene is the one that I was mostly thinking of when I was like, it just, the comedy goes in every direction at once. It throws a lot of things at the wall to see if anything sticks. Yeah. You know? 
Because we get a bunch of ideas really quickly. We also have a sidekick to Moriarty, who is played by the dad that played Veruca Salt's dad. In the Wonka movie. In the Wonka movie. So another Wonka connection. And he's great as a slimy, toadying henchman. Yeah. So Moriarty's talking to this informant. So Moriarty appears taller than the henchman. He's on, like, steps up to a platform, and then he walks off, and then the henchman's taller, and the henchman has to, like, duck. (laughs) And then Moriarty, like, walks him over to these two doors, and he goes, I have somebody coming over. Please exit through one of these two doors. And he knocks on one, and there's a lady's voice. And she's like, oh, I'm I'm just getting ready. And he knocks on the other. There's, like, a tiger growling, and they're different colors. (laughs) He's like, just pick one of these two doors to walk out, which is, like, literally later the tiger doors. And the henchman picks the lady door, and is mauled to death by a tiger, presumably. We hear growling sounds and a voiceover of Mel Brooks for some reason. Yeah. And then Moriarty, like, turns to a curtained area behind which it appears there's, like, a priest at a confessional booth. And <laughs> and Moriarty gives it... This is just a lot of ideas all happening at once I about who this. Moriarty is. So he's giving his confession to the priest, and he's like, I don't know what it is about me that I have this thing where i uh, i have to do something rotten every 24 minutes <laughs> which is the, which is to be clear a funny idea that never comes back no but i loved it yeah i put it like yeah. imagine if it was like oh check my clock i have to kick an orphan you know like, <laughs> like it's just like he has to do something because that could be something you could play <gasps> to his disadvantage imagine if it was like up oh, 24 minutes i gotta go Burn that orphanage down or something. Like, that'd be so funny. Yeah. But I still had a great time with this Moriarty. I just thought, and this is my feeling with the movie in general, when the jokes land, they land. And they're funny. Oh, I don't think any jokes landed for me. (laughs) Oh, a few jokes landed for me. I loved the moment where, like, the priest box thing comes out with absolved and he's just like... Yes. The, this is, Overjoyed. It's the, so funny. The punchline of the scene is that it's like a mannequin of a priest that he's feeding quarters to. <laughs> and then it feeds him a little slip that says absolved. <laughs> which is, which he's Christian, I guess? So then we cut to the vaudeville. Madeline Kahn is the sexy baby that Taylor Swift was singing about. <laughs> she's dressed as a baby. She's singing a, a song about being a sexy baby. It was, it's a fun number. It's a fun number. I... The movie has time for this. There's a lot of singing in this movie. Yeah, there's two vaudeville numbers in a row. In a row right here, right now. Both with Madeline Kahn. And then the second one becomes a duet with Madeline Kahn and Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder's in the audience. Yes. Okay, so what happens is that there's a man in the front row who is clearly Sherlock Holmes. Oh, we never said Gene Wilder's character's name. Yeah. But it's Sigurd. So Sherlock Holmes is sitting in the front row, disguised as a priest or something, but smoking on the trademark calabash pipe. We haven't talked about the calabash pipe yet, which is like one of the trademarks of Sherlock Holmes, because it hasn't come up in any of the adaptations we've looked at. But both the movies that we're talking about today have the pipe. Yeah. They have the big, the giant signature pipe. The pipes, the pipes are calling. Exactly. So Sherlock Holmes is in disguise in the front row, and Sigurd doesn't notice. <laughs> but Sherlock notices that... One of the sandbags has been slit and sand is piling up at the foot of the stage. Right. And he starts throwing sand, trying to get Sigurd's attention. And Sigurd finally catches on that something is awry. And because he has an encyclopedic knowledge of vaudeville numbers, when the part for the male soloist starts, he just jumps up in his seat in the middle of the audience and starts doing the male vocalist part and trying to encourage Madeline Kahn to come downstage in time for a giant prop carriage to fall from the 
rafters right. where she was was that would have killed her. Sherlock is in the rest of this movie. Yeah. He just keeps showing up in odd places to help out, <laughs> which is interesting as an idea. But often you'll just like see him hanging out, doing stuff. To which I ask, why can't we just make Gene Sherlock? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because like the next movie has a really clear perspective on whether or not the main character is a clever detective. And this feels a little muddled. Like, yeah, he has, clearly has a sense of certain things. Like he gets vaudeville. Obviously he knows all the vaudeville songs and he has a, enough knowledge to realize that Madeline Kahn is lying about who she is. Mm-hmm. And he like plays her fairly well for the rest of the movie. Right. But then also he like needs Sherlock to be there to help him solve the case clearly and doesn't seem to realize it's happening. Like his own brother is sitting a row in front of him smoking his trademark pipe at the vaudeville and he doesn't notice it. <laughs> and also like Sherlock has to throw a lot of sand before he figures out what's going on. Right. So yeah, the movie sort of wants to have it both ways. We get, there's a carriage chase. That had one of my favorite Madeline Kahn moments where she's like, I'm screaming. Oh, yeah. She says scream. 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 <laughs> Yell. Yell. In her Madeline Kahn way. Yeah, it's good. Uh, the the fight's a little much. It ends with Gene Wilder and Farouk Assault's father both grabbing oversized... Oh, one grabs an oversized boot and the other one grabs an oversized glove from <laughs> hanging signs to fight each other with. My favorite stupid joke in this section is that when Veruca Salt's father gets the glove, he first puts it on the wrong hand and then <laughs> then he has to switch, which I think is very stupid and goofy. But Gene Wilder wins the fight. Mm-hmm. And the like, I, I still don't feel like I can trust you enough to explain who my father is and how he's involved in this blackmail business. Right. They drop Madeline Kahn off at her house mm-hmm. and then she like sneaks out and goes to this like much nicer house. And then we have, this is actually filmed really poorly, but what's happening is we have like lined up Sigurd watching the house where Madeline Kahn is standing behind him is Moriarty and his assistant watching Sigurd watch the house and standing behind them is Sherlock watching Moriarty and his assistant watch Sigurd watch the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a funny idea. Yeah. But it's filmed poorly, so you don't, like, you don't realize that's the sequence of what's happening until, like, the moment's already passed. Right. So the next morning, we're back at Sigurd's apartment. Sacker is there, suggesting he's moved in. Mm-hmm. Really unclear why that has happened <laughs> really sacra just showed up in the movie and went i'll be in the movie now sherlock needs a watson so now we get into okay i think the scene that i found most upsetting in the movie is this scene where sigurd shows up at jenny's dressing room oh because she's sent him a note to invite him oh and he describes her to her face as a, quote, frightened little girl who needs to be sexually stimulated before she'll trust anyone. And then proceeds to prove his hypothesis by effectively, like, foreplaying her to get her to talk right. about the case. And, like, the thing that I couldn't figure out for, like, half of the scene is, like, is he just trying to get 
to the bottom of the case or is he actually interested in her? And is she enjoying it? I can't tell if she's actually enjoying it. Oh, or not. I think she I mean I think she's enjoying it. I think she's clearly enjoying it. Okay. Also a lot of like mashing her tits together. A lot of that. Is this where the weird kiss comes in? And there's a really weird kiss, which is where I'm like, oh, I guess he's into it because he's participating in this really weird kiss where she like licks his nose <laughs> and then licks his upper lip and then like grabs his lip in uh, between her teeth and like drags him by his lip <laughs> onto the chaise. Very odd. But at the end of the scene, she reveals that her father is the foreign secretary for Great Britain. And then we fade to black and we assume they have intercourse. They stopped. They stopped. This is the first clue we've gotten in the movie, basically, in the case. We saw at the very beginning, we saw the documents get stolen. Yeah. It's halfway through the movie. <laughs> yeah. Not much happens in this movie. Not much happens in this movie. So then we have this unfunny money conversion scene where Moriarty is auctioning off the the... The document, whatever the document is. Mm-hmm. Plans for something? Who knows? Who knows? To the highest bidder. And he has a Frenchman and a Russian there. And they're bidding in their native currencies. And he's, as he's a math professor, is trying to do currency conversions. <laughs> but it just it just isn't funny. I was going to say, you made it sound funnier than it actually is. Right. It's a really, it's just not a very interesting scene. No. And the less time spent on it, the better. <laughs> still love Moriarty as, as a character, though. I like this Moriarty a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, jumping a little bit ahead, because there's this long, this long, awkward scene where Sherlock goes to confront the Lord in question. Yes. And he finds out that Jenny has been lying to him. Right. And that she's not his daughter, but is, in fact, his fiance and is a school teacher. Yes. Who he's been sleeping with ever since his wife died. And... For some reason, they take her out into the middle of a lake to discuss this on a rowboat. I don't know why. As you do. As you do. And she's like, yes, this is uh, I'm clean. I just want the document back. I want you to steal it back from Gambetti, who's blackmailing me, because he has this letter that she wrote to some other guy, but she doesn't want the letter to come out because she's trying to get married to this lord. In the boat, Gene Wilder calls her a liar, thief, and whore. Not really important. I just wanted to mention it. (laughs) Because later, at the end of the movie, they end up together. And I'm like, I'm not sure they like each other. No. I'm not sure they've ever, like, had a good time together. I think she likes him. I never feel like he likes her. Well, also, like, at the very beginning, Sherlock was like, I'm giving this case to Gene Wilder because she needs to fall in love before she can trust somebody. And then, like, Sigurd goes through this whole, like, foreplay thing, and then she lies. Yeah. Like, it, it actually doesn't work. No. So, what was all that for? Comedy. <laughs> Comedy. So, like a breath of fresh air, Dom DeLuise enters the film. As <laughs> I think this was the worst scene. As the worst scene. He's the Italian opera singer Gambetti. Yes. Who is blackmailing everybody, which also feels like a reference to... Uh, a character we haven't met, Charles Augustus Milverton mm. from the Arthur Conan Doyle canon, uh, who is a master blackmailer. And he, like, has this interaction with Moriarty, and he, like, wins the scene. Well, like, first he humps the chair. He does hump a chair. He humps the chair. He does hump a chair. 
because he thinks he's alone. And that's the moment where I was like, did I t- do drugs or am I drunk? Like, I, I could not tell what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, he's rehearsing for an upcoming opera scene. Mm-hmm. And in the privacy of his own room, supposedly, because he doesn't know that Gene Wilder and Marty Feldman are hiding behind the curtain mm-hmm. because they were trying to get into his safe dressed as burglars. As you do. As you do. Well, in in full suit and tie. With a black with, mask. With burglar masks. <laughs> yeah. Ham burglar, you know. Yes. And then Moriarty enters and, like, Dom DeLuise, like, just completely dominates him. Yeah. <laughs> which we've never seen before. No, that's fun. Which is fun. But also, I can't take him seriously after him humping a chair. I don't think you're supposed to take him seriously because he's definitely a fool and an idiot. But everyone's a fool and an idiot in but this film. It's this very, like, weird charge. Like, the Moriarty and him bite each other, and, like, they're, like... They do bite s- each other. Smashing things, and then they, like, get into bed together. It's very odd. They're just both so tired after fighting. They're like, we need a nap. I also have to say that the plan that Gambetti has come up with to get this document over to Moriarty is that he's about to do this opera... And there's a scene in the opera. Right, because he doesn't keep the plans in his house. He doesn't keep them in his house because he, well, because he's smart and he knows that if he gives the plans to Moriarty, then Moriarty would just kill him and then it would end there, right? So he wants to give the plans away publicly, which I think also wouldn't stop Moriarty from killing him, but, you know, that's fine. I think if there were any other Moriarty, it would not stop him. This one, I think he's afraid. Yeah, he's a a little cuck bitch boy. I'm going to say that again. I dare you to keep that. I dare you to keep that. So his plan is that in the scene of the opera, he will have the important document on his person while performing on stage. And then there's a messenger who enters the scene and sings the line, why don't we all drink some very sexy wine? And then he'll give the messenger the paper. And then Moriarty will have one of his goons be the messenger is the thing. So... I'll come back to this play later. Yes. What's important now, I mean, first of all, I'm amused by why don't we all drink some very sexy wine? (laughs) Right. Because I think that's a funny line to be in an Italian opera or an English opera. (laughs) I think it's supposed to be Italian, but... It's definitely performed in English with Italian accents. Yeah. So at this point, they catch Marty Feldman and Gene Wilder. They place them in a small rectangular room with a giant saw blade like most mansions have. This is never explained. It's never explained why he has this. He seems like mostly a small-time criminal, except that he has spent money to have a giant saw blade room installed in his mansion. The logic of this scene makes no sense, but they press themselves against one wall and breathe in and uh, breathe out, actually. Breathe out, sorry. So that they're thinner, and then the blade goes past and rips off a chunk of their pants, and we get a lot of, like butt stuff like haha their butts are out right kind of, kind of jokes for the next scene right they grope each other's butts they do grope each other they dance butts. around in public they got nice butts i gotta say they got nice butts so just just racing along because <laughs> not much happens after this not much happens after this point there's this a montage where everybody is studying the libretto i don't know why like some people i get where it's like, of course the singers are going to be studying the libretto. Why is Moriarty? Why is Moriarty studying it? Why does he have symbols that he's crashing? (laughs) 
while he's studying the libretto. Why is Gambetti eating ribs over his libretto? <laughs> we also have like Jenny uh, nervously reading the libretto. And I'm like, what is she nervous about? Because she doesn't know about the plan. No. Unless someone told her off camera. She's just nervous about performing well I'm in the gonna, opera. I'm just going to assume someone told her. I guess. The opera starts, it's bad. There's a lot of, I mean, like, it's one joke. It's just the joke is like, what if I said sort of mildly inappropriate, mildly sexual things. But in an Italian accent. In the context of Italian opera. So, like, it's just, it's just like, will you come sleep with me? Will you come to my bed kind of stuff? But, like, just just dialed up a little pervier than that. And there's a shot of an audience member turning around and saying seemingly to camera, is this rotten or wonderfully brave? Which is how I, <laughs> how I feel about the whole movie. And I don't think it's wonderfully brave. Is this a subtle nod to the producers? In a way? It does seem like that, doesn't it? What if theater was bad? Is a classic <laughs> joke that movies could tell. Racing along. G- Gene Wilder dresses up as... An ensemble member. ensemble member. And so does Veruca Salt's dad. They both step forward to do the Why Don't We All Drink Some Very Sexy Wine. Now here's my question. Yes. Going back to the plan. Yeah. Both of them, unsubtly, are winking their asses off yes. to Gambetti. Yeah. To at, be like, I'm the one who's in the plan. At no point is there, does Gambetti be like, and then they got a wink at me. No. I just think they're both being like, see? We have, it's me. We made a plan. See? I'm in on the plan. Wink, wink, wink. But the thing is that, like, Gambetti knows what Gene Wilder looks like because he put him in the saw room. Well, he's wearing a Hamburglar mask in it. They're oh, both so, wearing Hamburglar masks. So you can't tell. And Hamburglar masks hide the rest of your face, as the rest know. of your face. Also, meanwhile, Marty Feldman, like, Sacker is... Drugging everybody. Drugging everybody. Like, putting something in a bunch of wine. The wine, the very sexy wine that they're all yeah. drinking. Which, I don't know why. To every cup. Every cup. Every I, cup. I don't know why. I don't know why he's doing that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Moriarty comes on stage as well. Moriarty comes with a gun. Yes, on stage with a gun, also in costume. And then Mal- and then Madeline Kahn grabs the gun, and then yeah, him Moriarty and Sigurd end up sword fighting in like a prop stock area. There's also still the fight over the gun, which honestly gave me the funniest moment. Just Madeline Kahn just going. Oh! Like, the gun, like, <laughs> spinning in a circle, all four of them. And then, <laughs> at some point, she's humping the floor or humping on someone. It's opera. And I don't know why, but it's funny because it's Madeline Kahn. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The sword fight resolves with Moriarty being like, you're nothing compared to your brother, which was never a stake for the character. No. He was ne- I never got the feeling that Sherlock thought he was... Not as good as his brother. No. Textually in this movie. Up until this point, <laughs> he manages to get Moriarty to fall off of a ledge into the river, which is very survivable. With a fake version of the plans, he has the real one. He leaves it for Sherlock to pick up. Sherlock is like, the only the best thing I can do to thank him is play the violin, which he does by showing up because racing towards the end. Because some weeks later... It's the day of Madeline Kahn's wedding to the Lord <laughs> that she was engaged to, and she telegraphed F. Sigurd to be like, you should come 
Come to the wedding. Come to the wedding. And the movie can't afford to show a wedding, so they're we're at a park some way away from the wedding, presumably. We never see the wedding. Right. And she's like, well, I just wanted to say goodbye. Because I'm getting married. He's <laughs> like, okay. And Sherlock and Watson in very obvious disguises are there as buskers playing. What song are they playing? Hmm. It's a vaudeville song. Yeah. One of the vaudeville songs. And... It's not Kangaroo Hop, is it? It's, I don't think it's Kangaroo Hop. It's definitely like, oh, it's their love duet from earlier. Oh, I see. Yeah. From the, yeah. From the vaudeville scene. Yeah. And so she's like walked away and she stirs back and she's like, well, now what am I supposed to do? Because I guess she has feelings for him, which again, <laughs> I didn't know they liked each other. No. And then they do the Kangaroo Hop. And that's the movie. Not a metaphor. No. They literally, they literally do, do the kangaroo hop again. They just hop around for a while with Orville, who was there also, I guess. We get a finale. We get a finale, which is the kangaroo hop. Yeah. And then the movie ends. And then the movie ends. <laughs> this movie was not easy to find. And I... For good reason. Yeah, for good reason. I don't... I think I understand why no one is fighting to preserve this movie. Despite the pedigree of the performers involved... I, I did not think it was very funny, and I did not enjoy watching it very much. I don't think I liked any of the characters. I... You know, like, the Sigurd is sort of an asshole and a creep, and Madeline Kahn is... Like, you know, I think the movie's pretty honest about the psychology of what it expects her to be, which is, like, sexy baby and a little girl who needs to be sexually stimulated. Like, there's a lot of weird psychology going on there. Yeah. And it's all a little uncomfortable. Like, she's she's kind of a child lying to a parent the whole movie. And also a sexual being. And, like, you know, that just feels weird. And yet she was the best actor of the film. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Dom DeLuise humped a chair. That's all we can ask from him. Right. This, yeah, this was a film. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a movie. It's, you know, it's an hour and a half long, and there's acting the whole time. And Yeah, I mean, it's not the worst way to spend an hour and a half, but, like... Yeah, the cases doesn't matter. No. Nothing really matters Nothing really film. matters. Come on and hop, hop, come to the kangaroo, hop, hop. That's the dance for me and you. If you're over 80, you can waltz a little while. But hopping about the parlor is the very latest style. Come on and hop. Yeah, so we move about 13 years later. Mm. So now we're in like the late 80s and we get the British comedy film Without a Clue, directed by Tom Eberhardt, starring Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. It was written by Gary Murphy and Larry Strother, who are two devoted Sherlockians, funny enough. 
Yes, very much so. Because we actually start the film with a pretty direct reference to the Holmes canon because it's the end of the Red-Headed League. Yes. With the arrest of John Clay. Yeah. In an art museum. And it goes pretty much the way you'd expect. Holmes declares the case closed and the police walk off. And Watson's like, you idiot. <laughs> and Sherlock is like, what? What did, what did I do? What murder? <laughs> and Watson's like, you do not say the case is closed until I say the case is closed. Because in this twisted universe, the real mastermind behind all of the investigations is Watson. Mm-hmm. And Sherlock is just an actor who, who's playing the role mm-hmm. of Sherlock Holmes because... Watson invented the character when he wanted to write about the case, but didn't want his name attached to it. And then he had to hire somebody to right. to, to embody this this person that he made up. Right. And what's interesting is that the reason that Watson doesn't want the case closed is that he suspects that some larger entity is behind it. He says, John Clay's style isn't stealing paintings. I think someone else must have put him up to this, mm-hmm. which is the exact same writing choice that the Granada series made that, like, someone else is behind it and that someone is Moriarty. Mm -hmm. Both times. I think it's interesting that both adaptations that deal with this story have done the same thing and made it part of this larger Moriarty thing. Yeah. But this uh, case close overstepping is kind of the last straw for Watson. and He fires our Holmes from being Holmes. Very publicly. It's very boyfriend breakup. He like throws him out into the street, throws his bags yeah. after him. I mean that this uh, this would have been in the tabloids. We also learned that two two one B Baker Street is actually Watson's home. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Hudson is Watson's maid and housekeeper. Mm-hmm. So everything that we know about Holmes is actually Watson, and our Holmes is just there. Well, now he's not there. Now he's not there. And with Holmes out of the picture, Watson wants to rebrand himself. As the crime doctor. And everybody's kind of like, no, Holmes is more popular. You need Holmes. Right. Go get him. And we find out that our Holmes, whose name is Reginald Kincaid, Mm -hmm. is a womanizer, a gambler, just kind of like not a great guy. And we catch up to him in a bar, like bothering women. Right. Well, before this, first and foremost, Watson discovers through the Baker Street Irregulars that there was an arson at a paper warehouse of sorts. And Watson goes to investigate and the police officer is like, not without Holmes, sorry about it. And then Lestrade, as he's called in this film, and a member of the British government comes to 221B Baker Street requesting that Sherlock Holmes solves a major theft of government mint plates. Yes. What I like about this is that without the case ever becoming, like, the forefront of the story, Mm -hmm. there's enough details there that you can follow the case. Yeah. Like, the case is about counterfeiting, and we, like, get each of the elements of the case, which is stealing the printing plate, smuggling in the ink, getting a supply of the right kind of paper and getting a location to do the counterfeiting. Like all of those things fall into place as part of like larger scenes, mm-hmm. but, we, but you can, you can follow the case. It's written really well in that sense. Yeah. Where like 
again, it's never like the most important thing that's happening, but it's it's there. It's totally there, and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. The case makes sense, but you don't always get meditations. Right. We also learned that Peter Giles, who is the printing supervisor of the government mint, uh, has also gone missing. We also have the Baker Street Irregulars and Mrs. Hudson are the only groups that know that Watson is really the mastermind. Right. And I like the Baker Street Regulars in this. We get Wiggins as a standout character mm-hmm. from the stories yeah. in this as well. So Watson's kind of like, okay, fine. I'll go get Holmes. Finds Holmes at a bar. Bothering women. Bothering women. And, and men. And men. In different ways. And Holmes is like, no, I'm not coming back. I'm fine. But then it turns out Holmes has some debts to pay. <laughs> and so he comes back to 221B Baker Street. Watson's like, Holmes is out of town. Sorry. But luckily, Holmes comes in at the moment and requests from the government, hey, I'll do this. I just need this amount of money mm-hmm. in order to do this case. And we kind of get this a little bit early on, too. Lestrade in this film is very much like a jealous of Holmes. Not in like a bad way, but in like there's definitely like a rivalry, a rivalry competition-wise between them. Totally. And I, you know, it's fun to get a arc with Lestrade or Lestrade in this movie about who he is because he's still also a comic buffoon, mm-hmm. but he's so much of a buffoon that he doesn't realize that the detective that he looks up to and wants to one-up so badly is also a buffoon. Yeah. So they turn up some clue in the kidnapped man's house that uh, leads them out to... The country. The countryside, and where they check into a hotel mm-hmm. and switch rooms. Because yeah. Holmes gets given... First of all, they get given separate rooms, which feels a canonical. Right. But Holmes gets given the King Lear room, which is one of their nicest rooms. But he has bad memories of playing King Lear as, a, as an actor... And Watson kind of gets this, like, very almost up-in-the-attic room with a balcony. Mm-hmm. Which, honestly, Watson gets the best room, in my opinion. Yeah. Of the two. Yeah. Although more stairs to climb in that era. Yeah, but still. That's, like, a room with a balcony. That's a great room. Yeah. And we see somebody standing outside the hotel watching them. Ooh. Yeah, and when they return, somebody has sawed through the railing, mm-hmm. which causes... Sherlock, to... Comically fall and hang off. In a way that a railing would never break (laughs) and have to be rescued by... Watson. By Watson, who the next day on the train reveals that the person trying to get them is probably Moriarty. Right. Right. We also, in this small town, you know, we see scenes of Sherlock, you know, being famous, you know, getting a lot of press, getting a lot of attention... There is also a moment where they do find a dead body in the water. (laughs) The dead body kind of becomes... Completely irrelevant. Yes. But yeah, ultimately, Watson is like, so Moriarty is involved. Right. And Sherlock freaks out. And Watson's like, yes, but Moriarty is aware. You're fine, Holmes. Right. He's after me. Remember, we switched rooms. He knows that you're an idiot. And he was trying to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. Which comforts... Sherlock Holmes. It's also really fun to see a Sherlock Holmes, because, like, Sherlock in the book, when mentioning Moriarty, I get the sense of, like, okay, this guy is dangerous, but, like, Holmes is like, okay, 
I'm well-matched. Finally equal. Right. Whereas in this film, Holmes is like, shit, it's Moriarty. Like, scared to death. Even calling Moriarty, like, that homicidal maniac. He's after me. Yeah. So, I believe on the train, Watson explains his deductions so far, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that the drowned man was a red herring to make it seem like the mint plates were also lost at the bottom of the lake, Mm -hmm. when in fact they never were even in town. Yeah. At this point, a woman enters the film. Yeah, they decide to find and interview the missing man's daughter, named Leslie. So they find Leslie outside of her father's apartment, Mm -hmm. and they invite her back to Baker Street. They say, you'll be much safer here, stay Mm -hmm. here. They do get attacked by goons. Oh yeah, in the in her father's apartment, which is yes. why they realize they're safer. There's a the movie does this more than once, but it's a trope that I like a lot, where someone will open the door, see someone they don't want to see, and close it again. <laughs> so Sherlock opens the door, sees the goons, closes the door, which I think is very funny. I just, yeah, I like the idea that you can just be like, oh no, actually, I didn't open that. We, we see Watson being the badass and Sherlock kind of being the klutz. Yep, and then taking credit for it. Taking credit for it, yeah. They bring Leslie back to 221. Holmes is kind of being creepy. Yeah, he looks through the keyhole and, like, watches her change. Mm -hmm. And Watson's like, don't even think about it. Don't try it. And then the next morning, Watson kind of goes out and does what Sherlock usually does. Right. And Holmes and Leslie have kind of a little moment of flirting. Yes. He's certainly trying to flirt with her. She's Mm -hmm. not that interested. Mm Mm-hmm. Clearly. Uh, Lestrade and government guy come in. Watson's not there yet, so Holmes is like, ah, 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 ah. Watson comes in at the correct moment. And they set a timeline to solve the case in three days. And then Watson's like, all right, grab your coat, we're going. Right. They have a stakeout that night down by the wharf. Wiggins has found out where they're going. The clue was that the... They ended up with the shoe of one of the attackers from the kidnap band's flat. It was an Italian shoe. It was an Italian shoe, and there's this um, shipment of Italian shoes sitting at the wharf unclaimed. It was Dom DeLuise's shoe. <laughs> they realized that Moriarty's goons were waiting for this ship to come in down by the wharf where this unclaimed shipment of shoes was, and that's why they had access to them to steal them. So they go down to the wharf to watch the ship unload the ink that they need for the counterfeiting. Mm-hmm. And this is where the film takes a turn. Well, this is where we get, really, our introduction to Moriarty. Mm-hmm, that's true. Who's super cool. Yes. Murders a man immediately. Completely opposite of our last Moriarty. Yes. Not mm-hmm. a Quaker Oats man. Very evil. Has an evil beard and mustache. Yeah. And, yeah, a gunfight ensues. Mainly Holmes' fault, because he can't shut up. Mm-hmm. Because he's a buffoon. Right. And... Moriarty starts to get away. Watson, like, slips into the water and grabs into the boat to, like, try to hold on and follow where they're going. Holmes is like, Watson, what are you doing? And Watson's like, shut up. Right, yeah. He's, like, yelling to him and blows his cover. So Watson starts swimming away. Moriarty shoots him in the water and he goes down and doesn't come back up. (laughs) Watson is dead. And Sherlock's like, well, 
guess I can't solve this. Yeah. But a couple of pep talks later. A couple of pep talks later, uh, he effectively decides to try to solve the case out of spite. Like, right, because Lestrade is like, oh yeah, we're good. We, yeah. we don't need you. You know, I really think that Her Majesty should rely on more effective criminologists anyway. And he's like, no, actually, I will solve it, and I will solve it in three days. And, you know, which is a very silly thing to do. So he runs back to the apartment, and he's... Mrs. Hudson. Mrs. And Hudson. And, and he's like, okay, we're going to solve this thing. He pulls up the chalkboard. Leslie's very impressed. He's like, what do we know so far? Number one, Moriarty. And she's like, yes, okay, okay. And then it cuts to, like, several hours <laughs> later, and he's like, two. Uh, let's go back to number Let's go one. back to number one. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back. And he's like, the clue's in the name, Artie Morty. <laughs> but soon... Our Holmes finally gets something right. He he gets a counterfeit bill from Wiggins. Mm-hmm. Sees that there is a number 234 on it. And remembers seeing a Bible open in the kidnapped man's apartment. Mm-hmm. And he finds Psalm. Psalms 23-4, which is the line of it walking through the valley, through the valley of death. Yes. And he's like, well, that was a play that was at this vaudeville house before it was shut down. That I was in. That I was in. They must be at that theater. And they are. And they are. This is where the movie takes a turn from Sherlock the buffoon who can't ever get anything right to Sherlock the buffoon who can get some things right. Yes. Which is fun. Yeah. And Sherlock takes Wiggins and Mrs. Hudson and tells Leslie to go to the police. So Sherlock... Mrs. Hudson Wiggins go to the theater. I love the, like, crime-solving family vibe we get here for, like, all of 30 seconds. I I wish there was more of this, where it was, like, really, like, this group of people all solving the crime together. Shout out to Mrs. Hudson in this film. She is incredible. I love her. So funny. This is our best Mrs. Hudson yet. So they go to the theater. Yes. Moriarty also notices the clue in the banknotes. Mm -hmm. So confronts... Giles, Mm -hmm. in the basement, be like, so you think you're clever. (laughs) Sherlock goes down to the basement through a trap door. We get get a few shenanigans, first foremost, in a theater Mm -hmm. with Mrs. Hudson and Sherlock. Uh, We love an abandoned theater. We also kind of realize Wiggins is waiting outside for the police, but the police never show up. We don't know why. We don't know why. So Wiggins is like, well, I guess I'll go get them myself. And then we find out why, because the woman, Leslie... Is not Leslie. Is not Leslie, and she enters. Um, she's working for Moriarty. She's not even related to Giles. And she's like, well, you dummy, Sherlock figured it out <laughs> somehow, so you better get a move on. And at that moment, Watson appears. Watson is there. He He's faked, alive. Like Sherlock in the books, he faked his death in order to get Moriarty's goat... And this, like, triggers a big action finale where, like, things are getting set on fire and there's guns going off. Well, we also get the reveal of where is his actual daughter. Yes. We get one line leading up to this that Watson has about the real daughter being something of an embarrassment to the family. And then this, like, pretty girl with a blindfold on comes out and then the blindfold comes off. And she has a deep masculine voice Mm -hmm. which feels a little bit like a cheap transphobic reveal joke Mm -hmm. and i don't know 
Yeah, Leslie is actually... A trans woman? Yeah. Assigned male at birth, presumably? Yeah. Or a cross-dresser, maybe? It's, the movie never explains. The, but it's definitely like a... Some sort of queer situation. Queer, transphobic joke of some yes. kind. And they really... We'll get to it in a minute, but they do twist the knife on this joke. Yeah. Later. But ultimately, Sherlock kind of does a good and sets all the counterfeit bills on fire. Mm-hmm. And then as they're leaving the theater, the police do come. They arrest the goons. But Moriarty kind of locks them all in. And then a sword fight ensues. Yes, between Sherlock and Moriarty on the stage. And since our Sherlock is apparently a really great fence, like a sword fighter Mm -hmm. on the stage... He does pretty well in this fight. It's a fun sequence. Oh, also, and, and everybody, everybody just like agrees to like let them do it. So like the rest of the crime solving families are sort of crouched in the <laughs> audience section of the theater watching this happen. And they're all like, um, and I was like, he's good. He's good. Uh, fake Leslie, you know, evil. She has a gun, but luckily Mrs. Hudson knocks her out with a sandbag. Knocks her out with a sandbag, kind of on accident, but it's still funny. Yeah. She gets knocked out by a sandbag, not once, but twice. Moriarty's about to escape in a boat. Oh, yeah. In the so, basement. So Moriarty abandons the sword fight? Yes. He abandons the sword fight. He also abandoned the plates earlier. Yes. He rushes back down because the police are at the front door. So he rushes back down to the lair below the theater mm-hmm. because there's like a river entrance to the that area. And he has right. a boat there. He's going to get away. But Very Phantom of the Opera. The area is still on fire. There's like this... this Pressure thing that's going to blow. Yeah. Boiler. Pressure. And and it does. And he, like, unambiguously dies. Yeah. <laughs> like, he is dead. He's dead. He will not be in without a clue, too. No. I feel like a lot of works don't have the guts to unambiguously kill Moriarty because they might want him back later. They just kill him. They said, nah. He's dead. We're good. I like this detail at the end, which is that in the, like, denouement, Sherlock and Watson are, like, finally kind of a team... Yeah. And they get a chance to talk to Giles. They're like, we found your clue. Psalm 23-4, the Shadow Valley of Death, elementary. And he's like, oh, no, that's not that's not what the clue was. That's the address. Of, yeah. That's the building number. Yeah, 234 is the address. And they're both like, oh, huh. oh well, we still figured it out. We still figured so. it out. I, well, and I love when the work can admit that, like, Sherlock, and in this case, even, like, Watson, Mm -hmm. can get things wrong. Yeah. I like that. And then we get the twist of the knife. We do get the twist of the knife. Transphobic joke. So Lestrade is chatting with... Real Real Leslie. Real Leslie, and Watson and Sherlock, like, effectively, like, wingman him. Where they're like, oh, really? Like, uh, Leslie... Go for it. Yeah, go for it. Like, flirt with her. Leslie, you should be very impressed. He's a real... A criminologist or whatever. And, like, the joke is, like, haha, we're setting up this man who we don't like to sleep with somebody who has male genitalia. Like, I think that's the, that's yeah, what the joke no, is. The joke. Which is really gross. Um, <sighs> really, the, the joke is really gross, to be clear. Yeah. Um, it was the 80s, unfortunately. It was the 80s. But that's okay. Soon, Tu Wang Fu's coming, so we're good. <laughs> Will fix transphobia forever. Yeah, you yeah. can't just you can't just let a trans person live a happy, unbothered no. life. Yeah, in fiction. Although I guess I'd like to imagine that Leslie and, and Lestrade fall in love, and they both fix each other, and you know, 
Not that she needs fixing. I want to live in a world where Leslie Watson and Holmes become a throuple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want that. Yeah, it'd be cute. But we get the end, we get a last, like, press release with the public, and Holmes is like, you know, it was all me and my partner, Watson. And Watson agrees to, like, keep Sherlock Holmes on, and they continue their, like, weird, codependent, crime-solving friend thing. Yeah. Which feels as queer as either of these movies get, really. Right. I would say this movie is a little more queer. Yes. I think because, like, unlike the last movie, where the central relationship is a heterosexual, like, a fucking weird heterosexual relationship. Yeah. The core relationship in this movie is... The, the two of them. The Holmes-Watson relationship. And they kind of feel like a a married couple, in a way. Totally. Quarreling. With, like, ten-year-old fights that they're still somehow having. Yeah. That's without a clue. And that's without a clue. Definitely the better of the two. Definitely the better movie. If you're only going to watch one of these movies, watch without a clue. It's a fun time. It's, like, much more genre-savvy. It's having more fun being a Sherlock Holmes. And, and it's funnier. And yeah. I laughed more. Yeah. And I will say, full disclosure... And I haven't even told you this. When we first watched Without a Clue, you know, I had some issues with it, you know, especially with the Sherlock character. Yes, because he's kind of an asshole and a creep the entire time. Mm -hmm. But after watching The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, I came to appreciate Michael Caine's Sherlock so much more. And in retrospect, I really liked his character and I really liked the movie a lot more. Yeah, I think we were, we were both worried after watching Without a Clue, which we watched first, that it was just going to be, like, they picked the charming actor to play an asshole character, and, like, on the page, the character was not so great, but mm-hmm. the actor sort of was trying to make up for it as best as he could, but, you know, after having seen Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, like... Without a clue, he has an arc, like, he, like, comes into his own as a person, mm-hmm. he, like, learns to be better, and, like, it feels like a necessary character flaw for the character growth he goes through mm-hmm. more than it is, like, haha, it's funny how he's a jerk. Right. And what I really would love to see an adaptation do is a version of Michael Caine's Sherlock Holmes in the second like, half the movie, like, after Watson's dead and, like, he has to figure it out on his own. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes from, like, an asshole, awful character to, like, a stupid but lovable character. And the funny thing is that, like, I mentioned I'd seen this movie before. All I remembered about it was that it was, like, Watson's really the smart one. Sherlock is an idiot who suddenly has to solve the case on his own. I forgot how much of the movie Watson is also in. Mm-hmm. I thought that he got off the case much earlier. And I think you could do an entire movie that is just this idiot who people expect to be smart trying to do the smart thing. I mean, that's like the premise of Galaxy Quest or The Three Amigos, where Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm an actor being forced to live out the genre I'm famous for portraying on screen all of a sudden, but I'm just an idiot, you know? Right. So you can do an entire movie like that. But I think, like, in order to make that movie work, the character who is that has to be lovable. Yes. And, you know, I did, again, I preferred Michael Caine to Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. I just wish, like, his his character was more lovable throughout more of the film and not just, like, the last third. Yeah. 
I think that's still my issue with that film. But ultimately, Without a Clue is a pretty great film. It's a pretty solid Sherlock movie, I would say. Yeah, I'd recommend it to anyone who's looking for a lighter take on the character. Yeah. We're not even going to talk about the most recent parody, which is the Will Ferrell movie Holmes and Watson. The reviews make it sound so completely miserable to sit through. Yeah. That I we just have no interest in flicking that on ourselves. <laughs> We're not that much of a glutton for punishment. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the closest we're getting to a bad comedy Sherlock. Let's rate these movies. So we judge films on five criteria. Each one gets a score of a total of five points. The criteria is loyalty to source material, creative mystery, Britishness, total enjoyment, and queer subtext. Yeah. So starting at the very top, loyalty to source material... Sherlock Holmes, Murder Brother. It's like a zero. Yeah, it's a zero. It's a zero. I I maybe give it a one because some of the situations feel like there's some there's some Lanthet streets and there's like a damsel vaudeville singer and that all you know that also is possible. That that's fair. Moriarty is there. Mycroft is mentioned. You know, I mean that's the thing is like Sherlock does have a smarter brother already, right. and it's Mycroft. So yeah. interesting that. He's the younger brother also. Same loyalty to source material for Without a Clue. I'd say like a four. Pretty high, yeah. Yeah, four or five, actually. I, I think, uh, I think, easy four. I yeah. think I think not a five because obviously the dynamic is different. Right. Yeah. Grade of mystery. Grade of mystery. Sherlock Holmes, smarter brother. One. One. I, yeah, what is that case? <laughs> It's not a case. Not a case. It's not a case. Grade of mystery in without a clue. I'd say three, honestly. Oh, I, mean, I I really enjoy the mystery. It's definitely not the forefront, but like I said, I like that it feels fleshed out. I would give it a three and a half. You wouldn't go down to a three? No, I, I think it's in the upper level of mysteries. Okay, three and a half. Britishness. Britishness. Oh, zeros all around. I, uh, I will say that Without a Clue had many of Britain's finest character actors in it. I would say Without a Clue is very British. Is very British? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say fairly British. I'd give it a four. Maybe. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot more British than the other one, than Smarter Brother. I think Smarter Brother is a zero. Definitely not British. I this think... is an American film for American audiences. Yeah, all the characters are Americans, aren't they? Yeah. The only, honestly, the only Brit is Marty Feldman and the Wonka dad. Right. I give it a one. I, they're doing the foggy streets at least. The music hall feels British. You know, they're, they're making a, a token effort at least. Okay. I get a picture of Zero that's just like set in America, you know, but they're like trying they're yeah. like, a little bit. Total enjoyment? Smarter Brother, the performances are fun. Some of them. Yes. I would give it a two because I think Madeline Kahn, it's Madeline Kahn movie. Yeah. With a little bit of the actor playing Moriarty. I could go two, four. I could go two for Smarter Brother and four for Without a Clue. Yeah, I can go for that. Okay. Queer. Sub. Text. Zero for... Yes, Murder Brother is the straightest movie we've ever seen. Yeah. That's a zero for sure. I would go with three on the other one. What do you think? Yeah, I'd go for a nice little three. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. 
For sure. So what the, what does that do for our two scores? Out of 25, we have a five for Smarter Brother. Making it the worst film we've ever seen. Making it the worst film we've ever seen. And then an 18 and a half for Without a Clue. All right. Making it... Kind so, of in the top four. So that's our Sherlock Holmes parody double feature. Mm-hmm. You can join us next week when we're watching a work that uses the exact same pun, the VeggieTales film, Sherlock Holmes and the Golden Ruler, which should be a good time. And then the week after that will be our Christmas special. Christmas! Where we're looking at... Really, the only Christmas Holmes The only Christmas Holmes story, The Blue Carbuncle. Yeah. And I think we're comparing the story to its Granada TV adaptation because... We miss Jeremy Brett. So we've been your Baker Street regulars... And we'll see you next week.